everybody. Thanks for listening to The Hustle. This is John Lamoureux. Our guest this week is Mr. Zero. He's the guitar player and primary songwriter for the Canadian power pop band, The Kings. Uh, now, if you're not familiar with who they are, they had, they had one hit in 1980, This Beat Goes On and Switching to Glide, two songs combined. Uh, one of the greatest, not just power pop, but rock song ever written. In fact, their debut album, The Kings Are Here, is perfection start to finish. If you don't know who they are, I highly, highly recommend it if you care at all about rock music. I wanted to talk to Mr. Zero about what, you know, life is like for a one-hit wonder band, basically. And this is a term that he's comfortable with. Um, in fact, he's produced, directed and produced a DVD on the story of his one hit. The reason why this one I think is particularly poignant is because he recently discovered some health issues that might put the future of the band in jeopardy. Uh, I wanted to hear that story. We of course wish him well. Also, it's pretty interesting the stories he tells about working with Bob Ezrin, who produced their first couple albums, and what life has been like for the last 35 years basically since things have kind of wound down. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. Hope you enjoy it. Zero called me from his home outside of Toronto. All right, Mr. Zero, thanks for talking to me today. I really, really appreciate your time. Um, I want to give you a, a heads up on how I discovered the Kings, and unfortunately I'm fairly new to the party about, I think it was probably about three years ago, I was um, listening to something on YouTube, and it was probably of the power pop vein. I'm guessing it was a band like The Producers or something like that. And uh, I got distracted, wasn't thinking and or watching, and it, uh, you know how it kind of immediately starts up another video afterwards, and it started playing, this beat goes on. And I'm 40, I'm almost 42, so in 1980, I would have been seven years old. And so switching to glide, you know, beat goes on, switching to glide, sounded vaguely familiar, but it's not, it's not such a ubiquitous hit that you know it by heart, and it's overplayed like Hotel California. Yeah, I so, wish. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's got to be a double-edged sword in some ways. But, oh, it's, um, a, it's a pretty good song. That's true. That's true. Um, so I, uh, I, I just, you know, immediately knocked out by how do I not know what this is? This is maybe one of the most perfect rock songs ever written. And I'll tell you, my bro a friend of my brother-in-law's uh, believes that This Beat Goes On, Switching the Glide is the greatest rock song ever written. So you've got a couple of people in your camp who think you're a genius. Yeah, I um, well, if you've read some of the uh, the comments on our, you know, the, the YouTube video that I mean, we just went over a million plays on it, and uh, yep. and people have some of those outrageously nice things to say about it as well. So, um, <laughs> well, it's I'm true. It's it's a work of genius. I mean, it really <laughs> is. And but I and this is something I want to ask you about in a little bit. Let me. Let me finish kind of prefacing how I heard about this. So I, I immediately after I found, after I discovered you guys, I um, started following you on Facebook. And then it became this epic of when are we going to hit a million views on YouTube of the hit. Yeah. And I've been following with bated breath. And I, I, I have to say I probably contributed 15 to 20 of those hits myself. So, and then I'll never forget it. Last year, it would have been last January, 
um, I, I won a $10 iTunes gift card at work. And I, happened, I didn't know what I was going to use it for. And that night I was on Facebook, and you guys posted how grateful you were that people were viewing your hit, and wouldn't it be great if that somehow converted into money in your pocket? <laughs> and I thought, done. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy the Kings Are Here with my $10 gift card. And, uh, and I did, and it's honestly one of the greatest albums ever. Well, so that's you. how I found the Kings. And now well, I just am obsessed. Well, that is a... Um... I mean, I, 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 I know I, I didn't like putting that um, that posting on there, you know, trying to guilt people into buying the darn thing. But no, no, no. It's, it's just the world we live in now, where sure. you know, you know, nobody feels like buying anything, you know. And, and yeah. I, know, I understand that, and I know that. I mean, we got the video up. You know, you can watch it as many times as you want for free and all that. And the video is obviously, you know, another whole story about how I made that yep. and, you know, how great it is and, you know, how happy we are with it, of course, because, you know, there never was one. But but it would be nice if somewhere along the way, I mean, if you think of the fact that, that the, the thing gets viewed on YouTube over a thousand times a day. That's incredible. So if just... A little person. <laughs> just a few of those. If, if just a few of them would buy it, then yeah, there'd yeah. be a few shekels coming our way, which yeah. would be nice. But you know, I, I you know, I get it. Uh, yeah, it's rough, man. And I'm guessing someone like you. I mean, I don't know. Do you feel kind of hemmed in by this one song? Does it ever bother you um, that that's kind of you know that's as they say going to be on your tombstone or whatever no no not it's actually the opposite of that i think is that oh, good. Uh, um, we're uh grateful for it and uh and dave and i have closed off many a conversation with uh the line thank god for switching to glide nothing matters but the weekend from a tuesday point of Where he 
used to record with Alice Cooper and uh, and the guests who used to record there in a place called Nimbus 9. And we went in there because of its reputation. We saved up a bunch of money from playing and all that, and we were in there trying to do an indie album on our own. And then we were lucky enough that uh, that Bob dropped by um, in the uh, sort of immediate aftermath of the Pink Floyd Wall album, and he was yeah. in Toronto again. And, and our manager, you know, at the time uh, kind of, Met him and kind of wooed him, I guess, a little bit. And uh, he listened to our stuff and he took it home and his kids liked it. And so he thought, well, oh, nice. that that maybe you had a shot. And of course, he was yeah. you know, the hottest guy in the world at the time and everything. Sure. And Did he have was, any idea who you were? No. I mean, he heard, no. I didn't know if you had like enough of a local following or kind of some buzz about you, about the band. Well, even whether if, even going back to Whistle King, that he would have any idea who the Kings were. Well, no. I mean, even if he did, he. I mean, yeah. Even if we had, he's on to bigger and better things. Yeah, he hadn't been in Canada for a year or two. I think. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're right. So he wouldn't have heard of us, but uh, yeah. But like, I think he uh, appreciated the fact that we were, uh, um, you know, ready but not ready, and 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 uh-huh. and, and the tapes that 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 we had, he was originally just going to remix them um, from our recordings, and then he. When you take a um, you know a multi-track tape down to its spare bones and you listen to what the tracks are, if you if you got ears like him, you realize that the songs were there, the talent is there, but they yeah. really didn't know that much about making real records, and so he yeah. did, and I think that yeah. that is what uh, and that's what he said about the original demo of Switching to Glide and this beat goes on was that there's something there, but it's not right, and so you've right. got to go, you've got to go re rework it and then that's what dave came up with the musical change and then we rewrote i rewrote the lyrics and everything and that's what made it with bob's yeah. incredible recording what what the hit that it is today you know when uh when someone like bob ezrin i mean he's one of those producers kind of like mutt lang or steve Lillywhite or i mean he has a sound you know i mean he brings a personality to a band and applies that personality onto them rather than a producer who comes in and just sort of tries to accentuate what the band already has going. At least that's my view of it. Kind of like Rick Rubin or, you know. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but did he, I, did he come in there and alter what you were about at all? I, I'm guessing because the songwriting, the bones of the songwriting on that first album are so perfectly strong that he probably just amped up the sound. He probably made it crisper, clearer, more specific, more perfect, uh, and just elevated it to another level? Or did he get in there with his hands dirty and really change things up a bit? No, I don't think that uh, at that point in time that that if you heard our our versions of those songs and then what he did with them, I don't think you'd find there'd be that much different. Okay. Um, maybe, I mean, the little accents or notes, or the types of his thing that he put in there i mean he likes you know big choirs yeah or, you know sometimes you'll hear more of that on there than we would necessarily have done um things like that but but by and large um the arrangements were pretty pretty similar um and so i think that he he really had to work with our drummer a lot and i think that that is one of the things that you'll find with a lot of producers is that when you've got a band like ours that pretty much came, I mean, three of us went to the same high school and uh, 
two of us went to the same public school. And so, you know, it was a pretty organic, local type of situation. Yeah. Um, but what you'll find a lot of in those times is that, you know, the Beatles had to hire Ringo. He wasn't their original guy. And so right. um, the original drummers are sometimes the guys that get the boot. <laughs> yeah, what, what is it with that? I mean, the well, Clash, even Spinal Tap can't hold on to a, a drummer. What's the deal? Well, the thing that people don't really realize, I think, is that when you're making records, I mean, real records, the drumming is just, if, if it's pretty much the most important thing, or certainly one of them. And if the yeah. drumming is not, you know, and if you go back to any of the the real hero bands, I mean, Ringo's an awesome drummer, Charlie Watts is an awesome drummer, John Bonham is an awesome drummer. Without those guys, those bands would not have been what they were. And yeah. They might have got you know big and all that, but they certainly wouldn't have made the great records. And then when you're talking about making records, the drumming is is really really important. And so I think that our a lot of them are are they don't really know what they're doing. They're so busy. Um, yeah. And one of the great things about music is trying to, to be invisible. And then when you're invisible, what is important can stick out. Mm. And so. You know, if you watch any of those, you listen to the records, you know, like, I mean, maybe not now, but I mean, like good Nashville records, like, you know, those kind of real players, they, they don't stick out. They just blend yeah. in. And I think that right. that is important. And I, and so the vocal sticks out and the song sticks out because that's what you want. Right, right. And that's why, well, you know, that's the that's well, the Beatles or the Stones, you know. Yeah. I mean, in the, and it, I assume Max Stiles is a perfectly nice guy. I mean, he yeah. seemed great in the DVD. All the he, that was one of the best parts of that movie was the four of you just being buddies. You know, good old guys, simple guys. Well, I, um, think, I, I think he's the star of that DVD. <laughs> I do too, actually. Which is, I wasn't. I didn't want to say that, but that's actually I do too. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely the most affable and kind of you know, bud or uh, nice guy of the whole bunch. So, yeah. but was there some kind of a conflict with him, or was it just? Uh, was he getting disillusioned? Was Bob Ezrin kind of putting him through the ringer? Well, why? Why? What's the conflict? Yeah, you know, that happened. That that Bob uh, wasn't happy with with his drumming and that, and um, and so it was a it was a question again of the old, uh, um, you know, you can we had to stick up for him, and I mean, yeah. as far as you know, back in the day, Bob was concerned, it was like, well, let's just you know get rid of him and get somebody else, but. Mm. You know, we came up with them and that, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, our loyalty went a little deeper than that, and so it was like, well, let's work with it, and so Bob yeah. was very patient and uh, and you know, and managed to pull out a great performance from Max. I mean, the drumming in this beat and switching to glide is. It's it's another one of those things. It's so weird that it makes the song, and I don't think anybody else would have played it like that. So it's part of the magic of that song. Yeah, is the strange drum parts and all that. But sure. And um, you know, our subsequent drummers have tried to learn that stuff, and I think uh, most haven't got it quite perfect. But uh, so why is, um, is there a reason why Max can't and? This is this is kind of what we're leading up to. We don't have to jump to it quite now, but is there a reason why Max wouldn't continue to play with you guys? 
Well, he quit um, on the road. We were out in uh, British Columbia and uh, I guess 1982 or sometime. And uh, it was just an unfortunate thing that happened. Um, you know, I don't know if there's any point in going into it, but uh, it's no, that's just, fine. let's just say that it reached a, a point where he uh, decided one night in the heat of the moment to put in his resignation and then yeah. two days later kind of didn't want to but the cat the die was cast and so yeah. kind of said you know uh but he is a sweet guy um sure and but like um, you guys i mean i know um i mean you guys still play periodically i remember again going back to facebook you apologizing for opening for ted nugent recently right uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> what? I mean, what's stopping? No, and again, if I'm putting you in a weird situation, just tell me. I don't. I'm, this is nothing against current drummers. This is, but what's stopping anyone from just saying, "Hey, Max, come play with us tonight. We're opening well, for Ted Nugent." Um, well, I mean, the, the, going to play. We played down in uh, Wisconsin with Ted Nugent, and we played a show in Chicago on the way down there, but. I mean that kind of thing takes so long to organize that, uh, and we have a drummer that Toddy has been with us now for six years, I guess, and uh, okay, and we love Todd. I mean he's a, you know, okay. Uh, the band, uh, the way it Everybody's is right fine now. Everybody's fine the way it is right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean Max is. I mean he's not a close. I mean there's no real animosity. It's just you know sure. kind of a, everybody's kind of moved on, and uh, we're much closer with Sonny, our original keyboard player. Yeah, who still plays on our a lot of our studio stuff and that. But I mean, these guys all have you know families and wives and sure. kids stuff and lives, and so it's not uh, that's sort of one of the things that I think ends the uh, yeah you know, the, the dream is reality kicks in and uh, and then you know when you're not a full time band anymore and the money is not steady, then yeah you've got to yeah. get real and and yeah. I, we've all had to do it and so. Well, that's uh, that's the main primary focus of this podcast. So, what what when Max left in 1982, did he stick with music or did he go back into regular life? Yeah, I th I don't think any of us ever left music. It's just that. Oh, really? Okay. Um, as far as I know, that he he played in different bands after that, and I know that he still uh, has a band that he plays with, uh, practices at home, and all that. Music is a thing that you know if you let the uh, if you let the music business dictate whether or not you know you're successful or not, or your love of music, you know you really got the wrong attitude. You know, yeah, the music yeah. business so is, is pretty. The music business is bullshit. Yeah, and you know it's all who you know and all the rest of it. And yeah, um, you know that's why. And the major labels just control everything. And so yeah. Um, and nobody's buying music anymore, and so you might as well just do it for the love of it. Yeah. I think that that is what led us to having any success was because there was no way that three guys that went to the same high school in Ontario, Canada, were ever going to perform on American Bandstand, but right. we didn't know we couldn't do it, so we did it. Sure, sure. And that was, it wasn't even a dream, you know, it was just... Yeah. Um, who knew? Yeah, and I, I think you that know. we started from the, like, I, I had met, I, I was growing up, thought I might be able to write songs. 
And so I wanted to try that. I'd seen my, my friends around town play in cover bands and all that, including my brother and that, and he had a little band. He's older than me, and so I'd watch that. And I just thought, well, you know, that was not anything that I wanted to do. I thought I might be able to write songs, so I knew I'd have to have collaborate with somebody. But yeah. finding that person, of course, and this was at the time when, uh, you know, it was a little more exposed as far as talking about songwriting and that, you know, because you could, Elton John always talked about how he worked with a, a lyricist and that, this and that. Uh-huh. Once you study songwriting, you realize that there's a lot of people that separate the writing of music from the writing of the words and all this right the structure of the thing and so did you was, and Dave split it up that way too yeah and so Were i you? met i met i was out living in vancouver and i met sunny out there and uh we started writing some songs like that and then i said well you know i know these two guys back in Can- in Oak- oakville where we're from uh-huh just outside of toronto and uh so i came back with our little demo tapes and Kind of convinced the, the Dave and Max that, that that I went to high school with that I had this little thing going. And after they had left, they're a little older than me, so when they had left high school, they went on to play full time in bars with cover bands because you could do that back then. And, uh-huh. uh, and so I, I'd seen the bands they were in, and they were good and all that, but sure, there was no original music, and that was the thing that I wanted to do. And so yeah. So when we brought Dave on board to sing some of the stuff that Sonny and I had written, I don't, I never really thought, or anybody thought, that Dave would turn out to be the genius songwriter, musician oh, that he is. And so, one of the best voices for yeah. a frontman anywhere. Ever. Well, that's that's kind of why I brought him into the thing. But oh man, but because he was always the most talented guy in town. Sure. But and then he turned out to be a genius songwriter. So it's uh, yeah. nobody knew but that. Yeah, I I feel like uh, I meant to ask this sooner. How's he doing, by the way? Is he? Uh, I believe I recently, at the time of this, we're at the end of April. He had surgery recently. Is that right? Yeah, he had a uh, he had a heart murmur, and so he had a valve problem in his heart, and he had that fixed a couple of weeks ago now, and he's uh, stronger every day. He's out walking around, and he's feeling great. Good. Uh, good. Okay. All is well for that. Good. Good. I My own sure personal problem. That. Is not going very well right now. So, um, your personal problem? Yeah, I had a uh, what they call a catastrophic hearing loss in my right ear. So I'm kind of uh, what? Yeah, the future of things are kind of up in the air right now because I really I've lost probably fifty percent of my hearing right now. So, in both ears or in one ear? Well, in my in my good ear, which is my right ear. It's my left ear was not my good ear because it's been beside the drummer for all these years, but now yeah. my right ear is, uh, so I'm not in a very good position right now. I'm being treated. No. Yeah. When did this happen? Uh, about five weeks ago now. And, uh, no. Yeah, so I have the phone on speaker here so that I can hear it better. But uh, Yeah. We haven't played or rehearsed in weeks. And so Dave is getting better, and I'm, I'm sure that we're going to try something in the next few weeks but uh sure i'm not exactly sure how or if i'm going to be able to do it so yeah i can't i mean all the things i like doing are uh you know jamming with my buddies uh outside outside of not only playing with my band but i jam with my friends and mix sound at the local club and this and that and i 
I can't do any of that now. So it's. Uh, oh, I had no idea. Yeah. So now, the, I mean, the future of the Kings is in some pretty serious jeopardy at this point. That's um, horrible. Well, I'm the producer of the band too, right? And I do all yeah. the supervise all the mixes and all that. But I think that it's just going to maybe change. I don't know that it's going to uh, be the end of anything. It's just going to be an adjustment yeah. to. Well, how like how often do you guys play now? Well, we play as much as we can. I mean, it just depends on what the uh, what the offers that come in. But if, if even if we're not playing, we rehearse. A lot of the time, we rehearse pretty much every week because really? we like, okay. like to, we like playing, we like getting together, and there's always something to work on because we have so many songs that even if it's not something new, where there's stuff in the vault that that we yeah. we like to learn again, and so so we do play a lot, and uh, that's we don't like getting rusty. And this is certain. I was talking to Dave yesterday, and. Um, I said, boy, we're going to be rustier, maybe the rustiest yeah. we've ever been the next time we get together because it's going to be a longer stretch than ever. Yeah. Because it's been oh, four or five man. weeks now, and it's, he's he's still on the mend. He can't, so he can't play because of the big incision in his side. And uh, so anyway, I don't know. I'm. It's. I know that he's going to be fine. He's going to be just yeah. better than ever. Right. But this thing that's happened to me, honestly, I uh, kind of really freaking me out. And so, I bet it is. Oh man, I'm really sorry. Um, do you guys have? Are there any scheduled gigs as of now that well, are even have, like months out? We have one uh, in September that's on the books. We have everything else. We've we we haven't taken any shows. Okay. And so, and no, um, I don't. At this point, are you guys? I mean, you're not like going on a full-fledged tour of North America. I'm guessing oh, you're playing one-off like yeah. festivals and things like that, right? Well, those kinds of things don't really exist for a band like us. I mean, we're a really obscure right. one-hit wonder kind of band. And uh, yeah, and even that hit is not that big a hit, but it's certainly beloved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and, uh, and also, being a Canadian band has not helped the cause because I've wondered about that because uh, we don't really have any American representation and uh, and yeah first now with the uh, you know, been around for you know so long and with all the uh, you know ageism I guess for lack of a better word you know it's like sure. if, if, if you're not shiny and and brand new and uh, I would think though you'd be able to get on some kind of a nostalgia tour or something like that I was thinking well, for instance I don't know how you feel about that, but like, for instance, last summer, I live in Denver, and I went and saw The Romantics, Loverboy, Cheap Trick, and Rick Springfield last year. It was great. And all of those guys, except for Cheap Trick, are out on tour again this year. And I thought, well, why couldn't the Kings be slotted in as the opener on a ticket like that? You know? Well, well all those bands have more hits than we did. I mean, if. Uh, yeah, yeah. But that's why you'd be the opener or whatever. I mean, I get. And it, and maybe even something like that, would it only really, are you more well-known in Canada so you could get on some kind of a thing? Uh, I don't even think that. Canada, I, think, or? I think we're as well-known down there as we are here. But uh, Oh, really? Okay. And I, it's just, we're... Sounds like you're I mean, in this middle area, right? I mean, we've uh, we've played with, did we play, I don't know if we played with Loverboy. I guess we played on the same dates, as like a, earlier in the bill kind of thing as Loverboy. But I mean, they had... 
and it's you know that's the other thing. It's all about management and business. It's not about music. It's about who's on your team. I think, and sure. that, that's why Loverboy, Bruce Allen, their management out of Vancouver is very very powerful and and strong. Okay. And they had a lot of hits in the MTV era. Yeah. Era, the, and we were around just before MTV. Yeah, uh, and then which is one of the reasons that I made our video is because we never sure. had one yeah, back in the day, there, but. Right? Yeah, but I'm very glad we never had one because the one that I did make is so much better than anything that would have been from back then, and it'll right. stand the test of time a lot more than some horrible thing that would have been from back then. Yeah, I wondered. I mean, Loverboy's Canadian too. I thought it was they're not. I mean, they can do it, but I guess you're right. I mean, there's you're too big and and too. I imagine that too old, too much pride built up to go play some small bar or club somewhere. But not well, big enough to really get on one of the higher ticket, you know, package tours that go out every summer, right? Yeah, well, and a lot of those I don't think go as, do as much as you might think. I mean, yeah, maybe most yeah. of those things might have a few shows, but they don't have that many. There's really maybe cheap trick, but I mean, bands like Loverboy, they don't and Trick, I'm sure they don't really go on tour anymore. That, that, yeah, that, that whole paradigm has changed in that. Yeah, you're right. They 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 go. They play casinos. They play rib fest. They fly in and they fly out. It's not like they get in a bus and and, and go tour the country anymore. That whole thing right. has changed for that kind of band. Yeah. And so that's their thing. I think the surprising thing is if you go to any of their websites of those kinds of bands, you'll see that they play weekends. Um, yeah. And, and 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 a lot of it is only through a certain portion of the year, the, the nicer summer months, and that. Yeah. And they're playing a lot of casinos and and rib fests and things like that, where there's a built-in audience and they don't have to sell tickets. It's all a lot of them are free to get in, and a lot of them are uh, included in the ticket price with a bunch of bands over a weekend or something, you know. Right. Right. Uh, you're not gonna, you know, and so that's just the way that 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 has worked out for for bands yeah. of that era. So if you guys play, you know, a couple of shows a year, um, as well, we the do. primary, oh, what's that? Well, we do more than that. <laughs> oh, you do? Oh, good. Okay. Well, I didn't, I wasn't sure. Okay. Great. Great then. Okay. So is that, is this your primary source of income then? Um, royalties on the songs you've written that's, they're already out there and gigs, or do you have a regular full-time paying job? Well, I've, um, I've been lucky in that I I don't personally don't have any ex-wives or uh, you know kids kids yep. or anything like that so I live a pretty inexpensive life and uh, and so I'm able to live off what I make from the band and some other things but it's not none of us are driving around in brand sure. new Escalades or anything like that right but, and Dave uh, I actually worked in the film business in Toronto for that was my day job for close to 20 years, I guess. Of, uh, really? Yeah. Um, because we have a pretty busy film industry here, and so I worked on yeah. the, I worked on a lot of movie sets. And, What'd uh, you do? I don't do it anymore. I probably put in, a, I figure, at least a thousand days working on movie sets, and, uh, you know, I certainly got to know that life wow. and that business and all that, you know, from the inside out. But What were you doing on these sets? What was your job? I had a lot of different jobs. From uh, I started out being a laborer in the art department, and then I um, we would do just lots of different things. And then uh, then we did some the band. We did some TV commercials 
full. We wrote the music for some uh, TV commercials here with Labatt's and Pepsi and okay, that. Okay, okay. And that kind of got us into the actors' union, and so then we started uh, doing some extra work and stand-in work and all this other stuff. And so, I mean, oh. it was a way to make pretty good money. And, sure. Uh, was this during the really lean years, like mid '80s till early yeah, aughts? Yeah, I started. I started, uh, I guess, in the mid '80s, and then did it for 15, at least 15 years. And uh, I mean, it was okay. great. You know, I'm not yeah. putting it down. I, no, of course not. Our, our, um, that's how I paid for our Unstoppable album was I from working in film and uh, sure. But you know, so I'm I'm lucky in that you know, for me anyway, uh, I didn't really I've only really worked in music and film. So uh, that's amazing. Really had a, had a straight job, you know. So yeah, I that that lucky. I would imagine would be a tough transition. I mean, one minute you think you're going to be a rock star and you kind of are one for a little while. And then it dies down, and then you got to go sit in a cubicle for the rest of your life. You know. Well, yeah, I mean, I think Dave. Dave was always uh, before he started this. I mean, he, Dave's day job. He was always a truck driver because he could. Uh, he owned his own semi, and he could always. Uh, really. Yeah, and so that was a freedom thing. He never had to work in any cubicle and all that, and so it was this kind of job where you're your own boss, and you could sure you could leave whenever you want. And I think that's the freedom that the film provided me too, is because yeah. you know you had some way to make money, but you didn't have to be there if you didn't have to be there. You know. So, wow. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. So okay, so you're able now. I mean, at this stage in your life, I imagine you're in your 60s somewhere, probably. You're uh, you're able to live that's off. What's that? Close to it, I guess. Close to it, okay, okay. Um, you're able just to live off, you know, things pertaining to the to the band. Do you? Uh, you can be as specific or as vague as you want about this. I know it's kind of a personal question, but what kind of? If you did nothing else, what kind of a? What kind of revenue do you see from, from the music side? Do you? I mean, does this beat goes on and switching to Glide provide you with I don't know x amount of thousands of dollars a year that that you write this one song and you're kind of good for a while or well, I, how do you make that, that money? I think that uh, it, it's always been a dispute with us um, really about the money we do make from it because there are some uh, entities in the business that think that um, if you want to analyze it, that this beat goes on and switching the glide is one song or is it two songs? Oh, I mean, sure. Uh, yeah. That's been a dispute that we've been arguing about for many, many years. And we, we didn't have our publishing. We got our publishing back about four years ago after a long battle, uh, legal battle. And, uh, you know, it's always just one thing after the other in terms of uh, a project to, well, for me to try to, continue the belief I have in what we do and the legacy of what we've done is that that's what led to making the DVD and the video for Switching the Glide and uh, and yeah. all the other projects that you know I try to get done. And one of those was getting our publishing back, and that's that took what was it, 27 months, I guess. And, uh, I mean, just, you know, lawyer in L.A. and... Sure. 300 emails, and I mean, my God, right. a vast fortune of money spent. Yeah, you got to pay all those people, right? Well, yeah, and, uh, you know, it's just one of these things that, uh, it was a battle worth fighting, though, and I'm glad that, that we did it, and we now own our songs. So when you make money off any of your songs, I assume 
the hit is the one you make the most money off of. Where does the, where do those revenue streams come from? Is it licensing to be in a movie or something like that, or does it get played in a commercial? I mean, where do people make money off their songs, older I, songs? I today? think most people make it from uh, radio play because the, the performing rights organizations, uh, there's ASCAP and BMI in the States, and we have one called SOCAN here, that uh, all the radio stations that play music pay into a giant fund. And, um, oh, really? Yeah, it's not like you get... 25 cents every time it's played it's more of a giant pie and you get your piece okay. of pie so so when songs are played on the radio now because i know that wasn't always the case but now if the song is being played on the radio a, a little kickback is being oh it's, it's always, to the band no, no it's always been the case we've been getting checks for you know decades and uh i always thought it was the other way around that radios considered what they were doing promotion and didn't have to pay back to artists. Oh, no, no. Part of their licenses, they pay uh, oh, a lot okay. of... Oh, the li okay. That makes sense. So the license that a radio station, part of the fees that go into paying for that license, uh, get the money yeah. goes back to... Okay, yeah. that makes sense. And so, that. you know, that's... Uh, and when we look at, uh, you know, some of these people that... Uh, you know, when we look at the amount of money we make, which is not a lot, but, it, you know, there's something there and when you look uh -huh. at that and you when you look at that and you go well okay we made we they tell you that you made x dollars in this quarter in Canada this much in the US or whatever uh-huh and then you think you know like you know what we have a you know not very uh, that many songs that make money obviously but when and then when you think about the rolling stones or led zeppelin or the beatles yeah. or any of those people like that, or Brian Adams, or whoever, sure. Doug Leppard, and how much money the songwriters it would, yeah. and, and because the mailbox money, right? Well, is that is that what they call it? The money that just shows up in your mailbox because well, of whatever. Yeah. I love that money. That's my favorite sure. kind. But uh, of course, but the uh, when you think those kind of artists are being played in every country in the world, yeah, and they have. You know, if the Beatles will have a hundred songs being played in every country in the world, or the Stones, or Zep, or whoever. I mean, it's millions and millions and millions yeah. of dollars. Uh, and yeah, or the Eagles, you know, Hotel California. Yeah. God, that thing. Yeah. Millions. The gift that keeps on giving, right? Well, as it should, because yeah. uh, people love that music. And I mean, I think the Eagles, you know, I saw their documentary and. Uh, they don't seem like the nicest guys. <laughs> that's what I've heard. I haven't seen it, but that's what everyone says. Yeah, they're businessmen at this point. Yeah, and, you know, they can't need money because they can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're good, right? Oh, they're a good band. They're yeah. I mean, they're good financially. They're set for, for oh, this lifetime anyway. Many, many lifetimes. Yeah, yeah. You know, they well, had a... One of the cool parts of that documentary was Irving Azoff, their manager. He says, I only got one, all the awards and everything that we got, I only got one thing on the wall. And it's the uh, the award that says that, uh, I guess it's the uh, greatest hits, was the uh, top-selling album of the 20th century. Says, oh, that, that's right. Yeah. He says, that, he says, that's the one I got on the wall. <laughs> yeah. That's all you need, right? That's, <laughs> that's it. All. You're that's all you need right there, buddy. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, uh, so tell me a little bit. I mean, I was reading your website, and uh, like you've mentioned, and there's great biographies on on um, your discography there. But Amazon Beach, as a follow-up, uh, I was telling you earlier, I bought it yesterday. I listened to it on Spotify many, many times. And while it's definitely inferior to the first album, it's still fun. And uh, there's some solid songs on there. Well, I think and I saw that it was five fifty, five fifty two, on Amazon and iTunes. So I downloaded it yesterday. So hopefully you'll get a little kickback from me here soon. Another one. Goody. But uh, tell me the story of Amazon Beach. I mean, it sounds like it's a kind of a conflicting record for you guys. Well, I think that we went into it with high hopes, and um, as it turned out, it wasn't uh, what we wanted it to be. Uh, it was our second go around with Bob. Ezrin is the producer, and, uh, you know, I don't know what he would think about it, but <coughs> we were, he was busy at the time doing Kiss and uh, yeah. another artist named Murray McLaughlin out of Toronto, and he was kind of juggling three balls, and he was involved in a, a sort of a residency at a studio in Toronto, and it just didn't work out that well for us. Yeah. Um, I think Isn't he was... This, I don't want to, I don't want to, like criminalize him i don't obviously know him or anything but you the this is supposedly because music from the elder uh or songs from the elder or whatever it's called from kiss had come out the previous year and apparently that was just like drugs non-stop and him at like the height i'm a huge Ezrin fan so i'm i'm not saying this to criticize but apparently this is like the height of his kind of power hungry uh, maestro stage, you know, well, they've I mean, got the wall and it, the wall is the biggest thing ever. And you guys are kind of, I'm guessing, getting the, the super ego version of Bob Ezrin at this point. Well, that was the one that was at the same time as Amazon beach was the elder. And, uh, we actually, oh, okay. uh, okay. we're actually working at the same time. We, if you look at the credits, Dave and me, I think sing backup on one of the songs on the elder. Really? I'll have yeah. to go back and check. That's great. <laughs> Good. Because yeah. um, we were in L.A., uh, and they were doing part of it at Producers Workshop, I think, and uh, yeah, we got to meet those guys a bit, and, uh, you know, nice enough guys and all that. But, Good. Okay. Um, you know, and Bob was, uh, I mean, anything that, of the things that you mentioned, I, I don't think that, it was any different for anybody else than it was for him or us or anybody. You know? Okay. Just, okay. Uh, just the way the things were at the time. And, uh, you know, it was just the status quo was that kind of behavior. So I don't think that – but I do think that he was spread too thin. I think that one of the things that we realized is that some of the things that we learned from the first album, we applied to our preparation for the second album and the writing and all that. And so – we felt that our arrangements were already pretty tight and maybe didn't need his input as much as just a result of the learning curve. But uh -huh. I think that he he heard things a different way and put in changes that we did not like. And yeah. in the demos that we had sent the record company from the road, they were pretty excited about, but when they heard what we were doing in the studio, that it had been changed and uh, they weren't happy with it and neither were we, uh -huh. but... But we had to sort of stick with 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 Bob, and uh, yeah, he he brought us into this thing, and so we owed him that much, I think. And uh, but it just didn't turn out well. They buried the album, and uh, 
that kind of led to yeah our deal disappearing uh, because uh, it's another thing about record companies when people come and go in the executive offices uh bands get dropped and new favorites are brought in and everything so we were part of a shuffle i guess and uh, sure sure but, now by yeah. the time oh go ahead no no i mean i think it you know we're not the only <laughs> band that this stuff ever happened to oh you know? of course no oh. um, and I've i think that myself a few people that have told yeah. a similar story i mean you say um earlier on about switching to glide whether it's a blessing or a curse kind of a thing and that's why we look at it as a blessing because if you think about it that we only they only really let us get up to bat once i mean we got on base yeah. and uh yeah. and many bands there's been a million bands that had major label deals that never had a hit that just came and went and disappeared sure but we have a thing that has survived and is still yeah. um i think the reputation of it is only going to grow in the future because it still sounds Definitely. great it's never lost its luster and i think that it's just no. it's going to uh you know, improve with time, yeah. um, and and maybe uh, someday it'll get in a movie or something or a commercial, and that'll bring that many more people to it. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. I mean, the Kings are here is about as perfect a record as anyone could ask for. Every song is solid. Um, now, by the time Amazon Beach comes around, I mean, B or uh, MTV is starting to happen a little bit. Was there ever any talk of? Directing well, no, videos for you guys to get no, airplay, or was it sort of over with by then? Well, they wanted to bury the album, so it, yeah, was, okay. it was never... So they never even tried. It wasn't that it underperformed out of the gate, so they gave up. They they gave up before it ever came out. Well, I think so. They tried it yeah. all the way was the single, but I mean, any of the... Uh, like Which one was the single? All the way. Solid song, though. That one, and you know, I was reading the bio uh, about the album, and you guys were, you're not happy with the choruses of All the Way and Surprise. I like those choruses. Um, 
maybe it's because I just feel like Dave is such a strong singer. He can sell just about anything to me. Well, yeah, I, I, I'll dispute that. But I was watching uh, one of the things that we might be releasing soon is a, 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 a videotape of us. We found of some of these things from the uh, the band in the early mid '90s, kind of a thing, and it's kind of a one camera rock and roll. Oh, um, us in a bar for a whole night and uh, killer. Yeah, it it it's really strong, and I mean that's sort of the reason that I think for me to get involved in a lot of these things is to like our live albums, the Party Live in '85, and the one we just did uh, last year was the uh, the Lost Tapes of a '70s Bar Band, which is an incredible record. Uh-huh. Um, you know, us doing you know Squeeze Box and Super Tramp songs and this and that. Um, I don't know if I know that one. Well, no, it's on the website. I think the um, oh, okay. The uh, but it's really the show for me that you know. I mean, I find these things and I know that we have them and I try to resurrect them and improve the sound and all that. Is to show that you know that we may not have had this. We had some success, but there's a lot more going on than anybody ever knows. And that's the one thing yeah. about having a hit record like Switching the Glide is that if it brings them to us and it, if they go to the website or they you know, our YouTube channel or whatever. There's certainly a lot more to us than that. And and you would hope that any band that can have a song that good, yeah, there's a good chance they maybe got a couple of tunes that are pretty good. And sure, we've got yeah. a lot more than a couple. Are there any other songs in the canon that you feel like are as strong and you wish got more attention? Um, I think we got a lot of songs that... That maybe I mean don't let me know off the first album that was the second single but it got caught yeah. up in a uh, independent promotion dispute at the time. mentioned in that book but that's the, the same people involved yeah, at the same, same time story. and everything like, you know again these are business practices that happen all the time and it's like you know every once in a while the spotlight comes around and shines on that and everybody goes oh no but yeah it still happens it was happening then it happens now it's just how the record business works yeah people don't realize that uh, they're dreaming but you know right but yeah, anyway you know the uh but yeah and so i mean and Unstoppable, the album, um, I think it's better than The Kings Are Here myself. It's, it's pretty much Do my you favorite. really? Wow. Yeah, pretty much my favorite Kings album. Wow.
know, I made that album and everything, but I think that yeah, song for song, it's pretty great. <laughs> I mean, I had uh, I was unfamiliar with uh, Unstoppable or because of you until recently, so I listened to them this week in preparation for our conversation. And uh, I mean, there, if one thing one thing that never is in question is that the Kings write just solid, structured pop songs. Yeah, they're just perfect. I mean. They're, there's never, they're hooky, there's a hook, they're hummable, they're memorable. You guys have like a perfect knack for that. It's a, I mean, it's a gift. Uh, I like those albums. The production values make them, you know, more modern. So it was kind of jarring to listen to what you guys sound like as more mature grown-up men as opposed to kind of the party vibe of the first couple of albums, you know. But they're just solid. Everything's solid. Yeah, I think that... uh... I mean, Dave and I have written a lot of songs together, and, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of really good ones, and uh, Unstoppable's got a bunch of them. I mean, a song I wrote with Sonny, If We Don't Belong Together, that's a hit. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> There's no such thing as a hangover, right? So, yeah, uh, true, true. Yeah. Um, 
you know, you could just do it. You know, we could play the gig, go party, and do it the next night, and then we sure. did. I'm sure that's the story of the Eagles and every other band. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But you guys seem to like to wear it on your sleeves. I mean, that was part of your... That's part of your vibe, right? It's to we're here to have a good time. Well, I yeah, and I think that that is uh, not a lot of ballads in those early days. You know what I'm saying? No, um, there wasn't, and and even to the day, there's really we maybe play one a night, but other than that, yeah. we like to keep it. We like to keep it moving, but you know that's uh, again that was sort of the time. Um, but as and, and as far as you know, bringing that to the stage, that was something that was never really done. It was. Uh, I mean, I know, I remember the time I got drunk on stage and it never happened again, you know? Oh, um, wow, yeah. Um, it was just, and that's, that's something I've told, uh, you know, the guys in the band, I, you know, I don't care what you do after the gig, but sure, you know, sure. we're on stage, we're straight, and that's the only way to, to approach it, Yeah. to do a good job, because, you know, being good at this, I've never found it easy. I found it, I, you know, even to this day, I think it's, it's hard to be good at it. Yeah. And, you know, if you don't give it your full attention, you're not going to be good. And that's why we rehearse so much and practice so much. If we have a show, we rehearse for weeks for one show. Right. So it's always been a serious business as far as that goes. And even back in the day, you know, because we had more stamina because we were younger or whatever, but, I mean, it was still preparation was the reason that we got anywhere in the first place. And that's something sure. we always yeah. talked well, and I mean, obviously, I feel like you guys have a natural talent in this area. I mean, not everyone can say that, you know, not everyone, they might have a sliver, like a seed of a talent, and they got to work extra hard to make it grow. You guys have a very obvious talent, at least to the, what my ears consider to be strong songwriting. You guys are in the wheelhouse of that. And, well, uh, uh, you know, I, again, it's... It's the result of a lot of hard work that, that got us to that. And, True. you know, up late at night trying to work on the tunes to make them better. Right yeah. Um, when you look back on your career, what do you consider kind of the high, the highest moment? Is it American Bandstand? Is there, when you're, when you were at your peak and you just, I mean, maybe at the time you didn't even recognize it as your peak, but in, lo in retrospect, what was the moment what was the experience? Was it a gig? Was it hearing yourself somewhere you never would have guessed? Was it well, I meeting mean, I, a, opening I, for a band that loved you? What was it? I would say there's been a lot of high moments as far as that kind of thing that have been very gratifying. You know, being in a, uh, I remember being in a restaurant one time in, in Toronto and, uh, you know, one of the cooks, I was at the takeout place and one of the cooks walked by singing Partyitis. <laughs> and yes. you know it wasn't switching the glide it wasn't this beat uh -huh, it was right. another you know and he didn't know i was there and he didn't know me yeah he was just saying it right and i thought oh, oh wow that's pretty cool that is unbelievable and yeah. uh, and lots of things like that hearing it on the radio you know when you hear it and uh i mean and anytime you just crank it up and how great it sounds and all that so there's been lots and lots of moments like that, I think, as far as something that doesn't happen to other people, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, wow, yeah. something that we did, and uh, you know, and, and hearing how much people love it, all the comments that people write on all that kind of sure. thing. But and there's another one for me, I always remember, that uh, we were playing in a little club, I think, in in one of our first tours of, in, down in the States, in, in Madison or somewhere, 
somewhere out in that neck of the woods in the Midwest. And uh, I remember playing a guitar solo and actually doing something I thought was pretty good and looking down at a, one of the people in the audience, there's some, you know, 20-year-old guy or whatever, <laughs> and he nodded his head. I remember that distinctly. He went, yeah, that was good, buddy. And I went, thank you. <laughs> yes, that's so great. <laughs> you know, because oh, I, I thought, you know, I played something that was pretty good, and I looked down, there was a guy that went, yeah, that was good. Buddy. Yeah, right on, you nailed it. Yeah. And that guy's walking the earth right now and has no idea that he impacted your life that way. That's incredible. For sure, you know, but that was, you know, I always remember that, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's wow. I mean, one of the funny things about playing music is that when you think you've played well, nobody says a word, but when you play like sure. shit, everybody tells you how great yeah. you were that night. <laughs> that happens all the time. They don't know the difference, right? Well, I don't know. It's just that, uh, it's just, oh, you know, wow. you feel like you stunk the place up and everybody goes, well, you put on a great show tonight, man. I was like, oh, really? Oh, wow. But, uh, yeah, it gets confused. Uh, well, look, do you ever play, oh, what? What were you going to say? You know, but anyway, there's certainly a lot of moments that are, uh, you know, very gratifying in that way. Sure. I mean, not necessarily, like, that was an illustration, that it's not necessarily the big things, it's the little things, right? Yeah, yeah. What were the big things? I mean, was there a, what was, like, one of the bigger shows? I know from the DVD, you told, unfortunately, this is my city, your horrible experience opening for Jeff back in Denver, yeah. But uh, were there other bigger... First of all, I would never put you and Jeff Beck together. I don't yeah. know why you wouldn't have been opening for Cheap Trick or some other band of that ilk at that time. Maybe they, they were probably on their way down at that point, kind of cratering well, as well. But it seemed like there were better fits than Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and the other yeah, people you were touring with. Well, and, you know, being a guitar player in the band that's playing with Clapton or Jeff Beck, it's like a, it's, you can't win. But... Um, you know, yeah. it's funny when I was doing the uh, research for the DVD and and trying to tell that story about the the Denver show because we all remembered it so well. But uh-huh. I tracked down uh, the I don't know how long you lived there, but I tracked down the guy that wrote for the paper, the I guess the Denver Post or whatever. Uh huh. Uh huh. That would have I forget his name, and I interviewed him, but I didn't put it in the movie. But the uh, you know I finally I found out his name and tracked him down and. I said, uh, you know, I wanted to find you because I play in a band called the Kings. He goes, yeah, you guys opened for Jeff Beck back in 1980. This is is like 25 years later. He says, I remember that show like it was yesterday. They booed the shit out of you guys. He said, I "I remember like yesterday. He said, I've never seen a band get treated so bad from a crowd ever in my life. And he says, I've been to thousands of shows. Oh, Wow. Oh. That's, I mean, that just validates it all. I, I wondered when I was hearing that story, thinking, well, is this just these guys' worst experience? or is it, Could it really have been that bad? But if the writer of the Denver Post, who's been to thousands of shows, is confirming that, yes, indeed, this was astronomically bad, that is oh, bad. No, no. I mean, I just said I play in a band called the Kings. He goes, oh, yeah, Jeff Beck. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, the, I remember. The, the McNichol uh, Auditorium, uh, so-and-so, 1980, <laughs> says, I remember that show like it was yesterday, and it was like, oh, never saw anybody get treated terrible. so bad as you guys. That is terrible. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was wow. pretty funny, you know. And uh, Yeah. Well, was, was there were there better ones? Now, here's the other thing, too. I mean, your career, as far as, like, on the grand national stage, 
only would have lasted three years, yeah, maybe. Yeah, something like that. But I mean, uh, you know, seventy nine to eighty two, roughly, right? I think that uh, the great thing about music, though, is that it, you know, there's no best before date on it. I think. All right, there you have it—the story from Mr. Zero himself. Man, I—I uh, I gotta admit, I'm—I'm I'm pretty concerned. I would be devastated if I thought the Kings weren't out there somewhere, rocking a place uh, with the potential for me to eventually see them live one day. We wish him and Dave Diamond absolutely the best. Uh, if you're wanting to send me a note with some show ideas, send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. I will take all ideas into consideration. I'd love to find bands that matter to you. Also, in the weeks ahead, we've got an interview with the self-proclaimed king of power pop, Paul Collins. Uh, wait till you hear some of the ups and downs. He is brutally honest about what's been good and bad in his career. Uh, luckily, he's survived to this day, and he's getting a lot of the credit he deserves. And we're going to hear from Marge Raymond, who is the self-proclaimed most famous rock star you've never heard of. She had an amazing string of close calls in the 70s, and uh, it just never quite worked out. And wait till you hear who her friends are, who she's collaborated with, who she's sang for, what she's doing the day to kind of feed that creative urge. It's incredible. Big thanks to Aaron Syrett for producing this podcast. Once again, send me a note if you want, thehustlepod at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you again. Bye.